Hey there, and welcome to Bustin' Out of Breast Cancer, the show that has us straight talking about surviving and thriving breast cancer with health and fitness using the SMILE method. I am Shannon Burroughs, your host for the show, woman's empowerment life coach, and also a breast cancer recovery coach. As a fitness professional who specializes in cancer exercise, I became the person I couldn't find while navigating my own diagnosis. I like to say I found my purpose at the intersection of passion, pain, and proficiency. I now help other women through their breast cancer recovery to become the best version of themselves through support, exercise, and healthy living with my online coaching and courses. On the show, we like to share survivor stories, talk with other medical and fitness professionals to help navigate your own cancer journey. Welcome back to the show. This is going to be an amazing episode. I cannot wait to share our guest today is Dr. William Vineyard from the Vineyard Institute of Plastic Surgery. Now you've heard me talk about him on previous episodes and how he changed my life, how he changed my journey, how he totally impacted my breast cancer journey as a whole. So I know you've heard me talk about, I fired my first plastic surgeon. Well, I found Dr. Vineyard in the same practice. Um, and you'll understand like by the, what, by the time you get done listening to this podcast, you'll understand like how compassionate, how caring it is and how easy it was for me to just say, yes, you're going to take me through my journey and you're going to walk me through this and tell me that everything's going to be okay. So welcome to Boston out of breast cancer, Dr. Vineyard. Thank you so much for being here. I really, really, really appreciate it. And I cannot wait for the listeners to hear all about you, your expertise, how amazing you are and how compassionate and caring you are. So welcome. Well, thank you very much, Shannon. It's good to be on and thank you for having me. Well, first and foremost, I would like to just let everybody know, let everybody know like your credentials, like you are the most humble individual, but the most intelligent person when it comes to a lot of things, but being able to sit and have a conversation with your patients about the step-by-step of everything that's going on is huge. I know a lot of women, when they get diagnosed with breast cancer, any cancer or any diagnosis for that matter, they kind of feel like they're at the beck and call of whatever the doctor says, because that they're the doctor and they know best. And instead of being able to be their own advocate. Now I've talked on previous episodes about my, my horrific experience, but coming into you, like I was completely defeated. I had interviewed other doctors and I came into you with my husband and you literally, as I showed you pictures, you literally like, I probably will cry because it was just like so impactful, but you literally talked about step-by-step what was actually happening to my body and you were compassionate about me and how I felt and how scared I was and pissed off I was. Um, but you, you made me understand it. And at that point in my journey, I hadn't had a fill for a bit. And you really told me how important it was for me that I needed to make a decision and get a fill. And it didn't matter if I did it with you or anybody else, but you just made me feel like I was actually in control of my journey. And you were just helping me give, you were helping me by giving me the information that I needed to process to make my own decision. So I greatly appreciated that. I know my husband greatly appreciated it because you actually spoke to him as well as you speak, you spoke to me. So thank you so much for that. And I just want the listeners to know your background, like why you're so passionate about it all, like not even just like textbook education stuff, but like everything that you've done and how far you've come to become so passionate about what you're doing. So can you please share that with the listeners? Thank you, Shannon, for all your kind thoughts. I mean, it's just the most important thing for me is education for everybody. I want them to understand what's going on. It's it's it can seem complicated, but there's a lot of simplicity to it. So I like to just um, explain the process through so they have an understanding. So together we can walk through the whole journey together. Um, as for my background, um, 
I started out, I knew I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. I had observed a plastic surgeon operate one day and, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure that I was going to be capable of it, but I knew that that is what I wanted to try to do. So I went through um, college and after college, I went to medical school um, at the University of Kansas and that's where I grew up. After then, I went to five years of general surgery, and there's several different ways that you can become a plastic surgeon. There's um, shorter and longer ways of doing it. Um, to me, I chose, I wanted to cho choose the longest way because I knew that at the end of it, I would be in a situation that during surgery, I would have the training that I needed to deal with any situation. So I went the longest round and did five years of general surgery, which was really invaluable um, for just having a good foundation for uh, surgery in general, how to take care of patients uh, afterwards. And through that five years, I did surgery in everywhere except for the eyes and the brain um, and the spinal cord. So we did uh, heart bypasses and liver transplants, kidney transplants. I did gallbladder procedures, um, intestinal surgery, uh, facial surgeries, um, and ICU care for four years, um, surgical trauma um, with uh, gunshot wounds, knife wounds. Um, and so all of that helped me to feel comfortable with any situation that I would get into during surgery. So after those five years of general surgery, I went to California, which was my top choice for plastic surgery fellowship. And so I did a, I spent two years doing uh, plastic surgery training and burn reconstruction, pediatric surgery, facial reconstruction surgery for pediatrics, um, uh, lower extremity trauma, breast reconstruction, cosmetic surgery, um, and as well as hand surgery. So those, those were the things that we trained in in those two years. But when I finished, um, I felt the passion for breast reconstruction and cosmetic surgery. So then I went on and did two more fellowships, uh, moved my family to Alabama, um, where we trained under one of the best uh, internationally recognized cosmetic plastic surgeons in the country and breast reconstruction surgeons, um, Dr. James Grotting out of Birmingham. And so there I spent uh, one year one-on-one -on -one with Dr. Grotting, which was a rare fellowship. There was like 12 in the country. So I was really fortunate to be able to do that. And so one-on-one, -on -one, I was uh, able to work with him, learn from him and, and see things. What I learned in that fellowship is that uh, how to see things from a different perspective. It wasn't how to technically perform the procedures. It was more of how to see before the procedure so you knew what to do and you're not reactionary. Um, so to me, that is the, was the pinnacle of my training because a lot of the problems that haven't happened from surgery or breast reconstructions uh, specifically is, um, is a planning situation. It's not usually a problem with what the surgeon's doing technically in the operating room. So that was invaluable to me. So uh, after eight years of surgical training, um, I went out on my own. Oh, you got your wings fly. Yeah. And so I've been doing, uh, I've been in practice since 2010, but I've been um, performing plastic surgery since 2007. So it's been 14 years that. Uh, wow. That's a lot of surgeries. Yeah. All right. So I didn't realize you did all of those surgeries. So just out of curiosity, have you ever counted how many total surgeries you've done? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. I bet if you sat down, you'd be like, holy cow. Yeah. So question for you in regards to working with your patients, um, trying to figure out what is going to be the best situation for them. How, how do you, how do you plan that? Like, I know there's between the plastic surgeon and the general surgeon, general surgeon does his job. You know, are you talking to the general surgeon or are you just talking with the patient only? Like, cause there's so many different things. There's, you know, your bilateral, there's lat, and then there's, you know, single mastectomy, there's lumpectomies, which obviously I don't think you get involved with that when it comes to plastics, but, um, but then you have, you know, the flaps and all of that, right. That come along with it. There's so many different factors that go along with it. And I know that the general surgeon usually is the one to talk to them about what is going to happen, but those different surgeries play a huge part in your recovery. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to backtrack for one hot second is when I saw you, I was becoming certified as a cancer exercise specialist, because I figured at that point, that was kind of like my purpose. Um, like I said, you know, I, I found my purpose at the intersection of passion, pain, and proficiency. So being able to talk to you about what I was going through and you supported me and you're very happy about that, but it allowed me to actually have an open conversation with you about the different scenarios that I was going through. Like, okay, like, you know, as a, as a fitness professional, I'm like, crap, I didn't know how I was going to be able to do my own job. I didn't know how I was going to be able to recover. I didn't know how I was going to help anybody else. And I thought, well, if I'm a fitness professional, how on earth are other breast cancer survivors getting through this? So that's mm-hmm. where I kind of felt like for me, I wanted to be able to bridge the gap between the medical and the fitness industries. So can you talk about what happens with the different kinds of surgeries and implants in regards to their recovery and then what they may or may not be able to still do? Okay. So uh, as for your first question about the communication between the surgeons and what I'll do is I'll talk about what I believe the best case scenario is because there are different ways that people do it. But in my opinion, to get the best outcome, I'll let you know what I believe should be happening. So the breast reconstruction uh, plastic surgeon um, really it's, it's good for him to have known what the general surgeon is going to be doing and been able to perform that. So that goes back to me doing five years of general surgery. I used to do the mastectomies. So I was trained on how to do that. Not every plastic surgeon is trained to do that if they do the shorter route. So if you have done the longer route of doing it, you know how to perform those procedures. And that's really invaluable because you can then work with your general surgeon if they're open to that uh, and the relationship is good, you can work with them and let them know the techniques you would prefer them to do to make your outcome better for the patient. Because if you just leave it to whatever the general surgeons without any communication from the, the reconstructive surgeon, then they're gonna do it however they're used to doing it. And, and it really needs to be customized per person based on their anatomy, based on their need for having radiation or previous radiation or any previous breast surgeries that they have or future surgeries that they may need to have. Um, you need to know um, from the, the cancer specialist what medications are gonna be on post-op and, and organize when you should do the procedure. Sometimes they wanna give the medications, the chemotherapies ahead of time. Sometimes they need to do it afterwards. So having worked 
in a team effort situation where we go to tumor board conferences and the plastic surgeons there for reconstruction, the general surgeons there for the talk about the mastectomies, the, the medical oncologist is there to talk about the chemotherapy or regimens they're gonna be on before and after the, um, the procedure. The radiation oncologist is there to talk about that particular individual and if they're gonna need pre-radiation or post-radiation or no radiation at all. So all of those things are very uh, important that they're coming together in one place to discuss it. And that's what a tumor board is. And so I went to many different tumor boards from different hospitals that I worked with the surgeons. Some of the surgeons would show up, some of them wouldn't. But the best case scenario is that everybody goes to these tumor boards and they know these patients and everything that all of these other physicians need to be uh, doing in the care so you can best organize the timing. So timing's important. The, the type of mastectomy for that particular patient is important. And working with the surgeon to, uh, the general surgeon, to do the type of mastectomy that you're looking for to give that particular patient the best cosmetic outcome. Um, and that has changed over the course of time because it used to be uh, the fear of the breast cancer what, uh, was overwhelming. And so they, we didn't think about the cosmetic outcome and the mental um, aspect that goes along with how do people deal with uh, life after having their surgery. And so it used to be that you did the mastectomy, no reconstruction, and you removed as much skin as possible. Uh, you, you removed all the lymph nodes that you could get to. Um, and that would help save their life. But um, fortunately, with all the research and all the different areas with radiation oncology and medical oncology and the general surgeons, we've learned that some of those techniques were very aggressive and unnecessary. So now we know the different types, we know genetic markers, we know uh, what type and what risk that particular patient has. So now the care is completely customized. Not only is the medical oncology chemotherapy regimens customized and the radiation customized, but from a surgical standpoint, not everybody needs to have um, the breast removed in its entirety, or uh, sometimes that's better than doing it partially. Um, they don't have to have all the lymph nodes removed. They can have a sample of the sentinel lymph nodes, which are the first lymph nodes that they would actually go to. Uh, like if you think about a train station, it has to go to one train station before it gets to the next one. So you don't need to remove all the train stations. You just need to remove the ones that are affected. And they've also learned that uh, removing the lymph nodes doesn't uh, really have the effect on survivability. It's, it's understanding what chemotherapy regimen should be uh, taken uh, or what radiation should be done. And that really makes it influences and not how many you remove. So the number of patients that have lymphedema are drastically less in today than it was 30 years ago because more people are getting sentinel lymph nodes and removing less lymph nodes and it's affecting their life uh, much better than it would have with the lymphedema that almost everybody was getting when they removed all the lymph nodes. Um, so the amount of lymph nodes going to be removed, what go, if they're going to need radiation after the fact, all those things play into how do I get the best cosmetic result for that person? So um, best case scenario, it could just be a small little area that needs removed. No lymph nodes need to be removed, no chemotherapy, no radiation. Um, that's the best case scenario. Um, 
And that's exactly what my mom just went through. And so she was very fortunate to have that particular early, low, uh, uh, not very aggressive breast cancer that they could do that. But that's not everybody's uh, outcome. So some people have to have more aggressive treatments. And we need to know how to customize the right procedure to get them the best cosmetic result. Because after the fact, um, they have to live with that result. And we've learned because of the chemotherapies and the radiation and these treatments, the survivability of breast cancer is astonishingly high now, which is great, but it's through the work of all of these specialists focusing on it, the research, the, the fundraising, everything to get such a high um, survivability, which is great. But now that focuses more to the life afterwards. So that's where I come in. And so I want to listen and find out about the person, what their lifestyle is like, um, and, and try to pick the right reconstruction that's going to be best for their lifestyle, for their age, for their previous surgery, because I have to focus on, because uh, I see the outcome, I follow our patients for years afterwards about the cosmetic outcome. And so these are not the thought process that are going through the mind of the general surgeon that's doing the mastectomy or the cancer specialist or the radiation oncologist specialist. Um, my job is to make sure that we're focusing on that end as well. Um, the initial fear for everyone with breast cancer is get it out tomorrow or today. I just want it out. Um, and so that is rational, but also irrational. Knowing what we know today, it's irrational to jump into something before having the team figure out what's the best thing for them. But it's rational in the sense that you, you didn't want it there in the first place, and now it's there, you want it out. But you have to trust the process, trust the physicians, because you'll get a better outcome if we have all the data. And keep remembering that the survivability of breast cancer is astonishingly high now because of these groups working together. So uh, when we had our conversation, we talked about multiple things and there are many limiting factors that go, that come into play and um, that is going to affect the outcome. And not, not everybody's going to have the same cosmetic result, but the result uh, can be maximized for that particular patient if these things are thought about ahead of time. So if I'm working with my general surgeons on how to do best do the mastectomies uh, for that particular reconstruction I want, and they want to, and they'll, they're willing to listen to that um, and perform it in that way, you get a, a better outcome. One of the main things that uh, has changed is uh, nipple sparing mastectomies. So just like they used to remove every single lymph node in the arm that was affected in fear for, you know, trying to save the person's life, we realized that you didn't need to do that. We know that now, so we don't do that now. We used to think that you had to remove the nipple, the breast tissue, as much skin as possible, and they used to remove the entire pectoralis major muscle, the chest muscle. They realized you didn't need to remove the chest muscle, so they stopped doing that. They realized you didn't have to remove all the skin because that made it difficult to do a reconstruction and make it look natural. So we did skin sparing, but we still removed the nipple. And then we started uh, doing nipple sparing mastectomies if the nipple wasn't involved. Same thing, you don't need to remove all the lymph nodes if it's not involved. You don't need to remove the nipple if it's not involved. So doing nipple sparing mastectomies provided a much better 
outcome cosmetically for that individual. So if we're working with surgeons, general surgeons that know how to do a nipple smear mastectomy, if they don't, I would help train them on how to do that if they were open to listening to me. And when I moved to Palm Beach County, that's what I kind of brought to the county. We started doing a lot more nipple sparing mastectomies and getting much better outcomes. But then, like I said, not everybody's the same. So you can have somebody with very large breasts and their nipples are sit sitting very low. Doing a nipple sparing mastectomy, we do, not have the we do not have the implants and the ability to make that look good without removing the nipple. So in those patients, a skin sparing mastectomy in a breast reduction type pattern can make someone look like they had a breast reduction and I can recreate the nipple and the 3D tattoo artists that are out there can redo uh, the areola in its color and pigmentation that looks absolutely amazing today. So uh, before and after photos, you can see someone that looks like they had a breast reduction and they truly had a full mastectomy with nipple removed and it all looks like it's back. So everybody's different in their anatomy and um, and what their surgical plan is and what their cancer is, but all that has to be thought about before you, you make one incision. And so that's how I try to get the best results for our patients and how we communicate with all the different doctors and listen to the patient. Uh, all of that needs to happen right away. And the process seems long and it's frightening because you want the breast cancer out, but that process can take a couple of months to get all of that in check. But again, the survivability is very high because we don't want, we don't need to rush into those things. You're going to get a better outcome long-term if it's thought through. I love that you said that you are very, very passionate about working with other doctors as a team, because I feel like that's what makes the whole entire process that much smoother and easier for the patient. It amazes me. I've been in some breast cancer groups that are like, oh my gosh, I was diagnosed and boom, I'm going into surgery in three days. I'm like, whoa how did you even get pre-op done yet? <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I don't understand it. And, and I know that there's different, you know, levels and grades of, of breast cancer. And obviously it's very scary. And even just listening to you talk right now, all the different things and procedures that have happened over the years and how we've progressed and made things better and easier. And the survival rate for cancer is so much greater, which is phenomenal. Um, so are there any other, um, different types of procedures that have changed over the years, or is, is that kind of just like the, the progression of it? Yeah. So in the 14 years that I've been doing these procedures, I've seen drastic changes. And, and that's because plastic surgeons by nature are artists and they are always seeking to make things look better uh, and be better for the patient cosmetically. And so uh, we're cancer surgeons, their, their goal is to get the cancer out. So it's gone and gone forever, but the reconstruction, the plastic surgeons, they have to be looking at it from a cosmetic standpoint and how can we always get better? We used to do a lot of flap surgeries, meaning taking the skin, fatty tissue and muscle from places and transferring it to the breast. And that is still needed in certain situations where you do not have the skin, or maybe it's been previously radiated. There's multiple factors that that is becomes the best option, but it's not always the best option for the first option. In my opinion, um, you want to use what you can locally and then have those as backup if there's an issue uh, with the, the reconstruction. But uh, it went from doing a lot of flap surgeries. And I talked about uh, 
And the reason why they needed that is because they're removing as much skin as possible. So if you don't have skin to use, that's going to be your best option. They were trying to use tissue expanders early on when the skin and the chest was flat because they weren't doing skin sparing they were, and they were trying to stretch the skin. It was much more painful. Um, it uh, had less of a cosmetic result, did not look as natural, and they had issues with uh, the implants or the tissue expanders becoming exposed because the incisions would open. Um, once we realized that we could have skin sparing, then the need for the flaps, which the main need for the flap is the skin and the fatty tissue that's there. The muscle just brings the blood supply with it. So if you didn't need the skin, you didn't have to do those bigger surgeries. And so it transitioned to being more of a tissue expander implant, implant reconstruction, with they, which they call alloplastic versus using your own tissue, which they call, uh, you're using auto, uh, autoplastic uh, tissue. Um, we would use tissue expanders and implants. So, uh, or they would also call it autogenous for the uh, flaps. So the implants became much more popular because we had skin sparing mastectomies. Um, once that got farther along in doing uh, tissue expanders, we realized we needed better support for the implant. And that's where we came out with different types of meshes um, that were man-made. They ended up having more infection risks uh, and problems trying to remove them if there was an issue. And then it went to uh, human-based or animal-based uh, skin products uh, to use as a mesh to support. And that's where most where we're at right now is usually using uh, cadaver-based skin products as a mesh to support the tissue. Um, and most of the time, the implants were being placed underneath the muscle. Um, and being underneath the muscle, you need that support below the muscle um, to hold it together. Um, that caused animation deformity issues for patients when they moved or flexed their chest or when they're doing exercises. Um, it could displace the implants, push them out of the pocket where you're trying to keep them um, to get in the right position. Um, and then came more doing nipple sparing mastectomies. We still kept the implants mostly underneath the muscle um, because that's what we were used to, but we uh, transitioned into doing it above the muscle and putting it above the muscle with better and newer implants that cause less rippling, better and newer uh, shapes to our our, our acellular dermal matrix, the cadaver skin that allowed us to now put the implants above the muscle, which so in 2021, that has become more the, uh, the mainstay of uh, the, the modern breast reconstruction when possible, doing nipple sparing mastectomies, placing the implant or tissue expander above the muscle with the acellular dermal matrix covering that. Um, but that requires that the uh, mastectomy be performed in a way that it's not too thin, that they're not removing fatty tissue, they're only removing breast tissue. And um, so that is really the transition of where we're at today. And we're using flaps for um, situations where there's been complications. Uh, I think it's important for everyone to understand with breast reconstruction that of all the procedures that plastic surgery will do, a plastic surgeon will perform, Breast reconstruction will have the most complications associated with it. Um, infection, uh, uh, wounds opening up, uh, implant shifting out of position. The reason is 
all the structures that we would use in norm in cosmetic uh, procedures have been removed. And there's treatments that have been uh, applied to the area. And when they remove the breast tissue, they reduce the blood supply. So there's um, many factors. Blood supply is important for wound healing. It's important for fighting infection. So when that's been removed, that's what we're working with. Um, we're going to see more infections, more implant malpositions. It's not really a failure of the reconstructive surgeon. It has to do with the limitations and the factors that are imposed upon them at the time, because they come in last to repair what has been removed. And so uh, more tissue being removed, less blood supply there is, more risk for um, issues of uh, loss of blood supply to the nipple, loss of blood supply to the skin, um, and so forth. So uh, having a good relationship with your plastic surgeon is really, really important because they're the one that's going to get you through all the complications because the general surgeon may do the mastectomy, but if you have any complication that could have been due to the blood supply or the, even the mastectomy, the plastic surgeon is the one that's going to help you through it. So when you're researching uh, the plastic surgeons, it's really important that you find one that does work with well with their general surgeons um, and that they have a good relationship with you because it's who you wanna be around and with you in your corner when and if you have a problem. And so I like to tell our patients all the potential problems because I want them to be well-informed, but also to let them know that it's okay if it happens, I know how to help you to get through it. And it doesn't sound like an excuse after the fact, it sounds knowledgeable because you know that these things can happen. We don't know who it's gonna to happen to, but it's gonna to happen to someone. And if, if we discuss it ahead of time, they're gonna understand that. And they're also hopefully gonna trust that that particular surgeon is gonna help get them through that. If they don't have those conversations, then it's easy for patients to get frustrated. They don't have enough information to know, and it seems like they've been abandoned. And so that's why I like to spend a lot of time with our patients and get to know them. And you do an amazing job of that. <laughs> and it's interesting that you just, you went down that path because that's exactly how we met because I ended up with necrosis of the nipple. Didn't know exactly what that was at the point because my previous um, plastic surgeon didn't say anything to me about it. He just said, oh, we're going to go into surgery and clean you up. Well, his version of cleanup and my version of cleanup are not, not even in the same book. And then to be able to come out of there and have my nipple cut off without any forewarning of like, Hey, this happened. That's, that's where you came into my world because you explained everything to me of like, these are complications. This is what happened. And like your analogies were very easy for me to understand of like the trucks and like going on the highway and like the blood supply. And that is, that was, you know, I was one of those statistics that, that ended up happening to, I ended up with necrosis. Um, but you fixed me. Um, and then I really am disappointed that I didn't have this over the muscle thing. I will tell you that. <laughs> Being no, in that would have been good for you, especially in, you know, if, if this was happening today, um, in knowing what your background is, know what your lifestyle is like, it would have been more favorable to put it above the muscle. Um, but that wasn't, um, really something that people were doing. And right. it's really interesting because there are things that were tried and these things were tried in the past, but they were unsuccessful. So people stayed away from them. And then people stay, like the plastic surgeons stay away from those types of techniques for a very long time. 
but then new inventions come in, like say the, the implants becoming much more highly cohesive and solid, and, uh, but still soft, they ripple less. And so having that plus the acellular matrix that was redesigned and being bigger sheets to be able to suspend it correctly, those two advances in technology allowed us to revisit putting it above the muscle, which was considered something that you don't do. And the reason why it was considered that way, because we didn't have the acellular dermis before like that. And the implants rippled a lot more. So if you put it above the implants, it, it rippled a lot. It didn't look right. And so with those other advances allowed us to go back to something that we were no longer doing because of the limitations of the technologies that they had. So in 2021, this would be, an, had been an option for you to do that, uh, nipple sparing above the muscle, acellular dermis. I still preferred the two-step method with the tissue expander because I want to make sure that uh, I don't put too much pressure on the blood supply of the skin during the first couple of weeks when the body is trying to um, survive, the skin's trying to survive from that low blood supply. If you try to put the volume in there that you will need to make it look good in the long run, right after the surgery, it may be too much pressure on the skin and then you can lose tissue to the nipple or to parts of the incision or breast. So um, I like to have the flexibility of an expander, um, which it was called an expander because like I said before, all the skin was removed and they invented an expander to expand the skin. But the way that I would use it in a, in a uh, nipple sparing mastectomy, I have all the skin I need I don't need it to expand anything. It's a adjustable temporary implant that's shaped for the breast. That's the way I look at it. And that's even though it's called a tissue expander, you're putting an implant in that's shaped the way you want it and it's adjustable. And then you take it out and it, and it can be secured so it doesn't move. A final implant can't be secured like that. So having all those benefits allow you to keep that, that pocket where it needs to be and get to the size that you ultimately need. So then when you take and remove and replace, which is a very easy recovery to go through um, outpatient surgery, you get all the benefits of the security of, of getting the implant exactly the way you want it, size, shape, location. Um, so in today, today's day, we would have probably done that above the muscle nipple sparing with the large sheet of the acellular dermal matrix. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't go back and get it switched from below to above the muscle because there are people doing that. Um, there's always risks when you go back into surgery, though, with breast reconstruction because you don't have as much blood supply as you did before the breast tissue is removed. So there's always risk. And right now, if everything's doing okay, you have to look at that risk benefit analysis and say, you know, do I want to take those risks that could be big and have to restart the process or, um, Stay with my limitations. Stay with the way it is. So I'm really glad that you brought up the over the muscle, under the muscle, because that is, like you said, it's kind of a newer process right now. Um, I get into a lot of conversations and obviously working with, you know, other survivors talking about what exercises we can and cannot do. So I have under the muscle and I interviewed Mary Louise, who is your nurse practitioner, who is amazing. And unfortunately ended up going through breast cancer as well. And I know that that had to be incredibly hard and emotional for you. I know that when we talked and um, had you interviewed, it was very emotional for you because we actually did the interview on the day that she was having surgery. Yep. And um, anyway, she had over the muscle. So when I interviewed her and she was like, yep, I can do push-ups," And I'm like, oh, <laughs> 
But so just real quick, can you um, explain to the listeners with under the muscle, why you recommend and suggest no chest exercises, whether it be push up planks, you know, chest press, anything like that, because unfortunately, and this is a, a big problem I hear um, is the lack of communication and knowledge that is being passed on between the the medical team and the patient. So they don't tell them. And this is why I want to try to bridge the gap between the medical and fitness industries. Like I'm so grateful that you are knowledgeable about it and you can educate and, and tell your patients why you can and cannot do something. So can you explain to listeners why you should not be doing chest exercises with under the muscle and can you do them with over the muscle just to kind of clarify that? Sure. So, um, you're going to hear different opinions and that's, that's the beauty about plastic surgery is that there's not just one way to do something. There's opinions. And that's how our field actually grows because some of your opinions are correct and some of them end up being incorrect, but you modify that as you go. Um, with that said, my opinion, I, I try to look at things. I try to take complicated things to a more simplistic way because sometimes science and medicine makes things even more complicated than they need to be. Um, and so when I think about above and below the muscle, the most important thing for the result to look as good as possible is that the, if we are using implants, that the implant and the skin relationship is in harmony with one another. And what I mean by that is that the implant isn't in one place and the nipple and skin somewhere else. They're in alignment where they're supposed to be. There's enough volume of implant to make the skin stretch just a little bit so that it looks like it's their own tissue. If the skin is loose, then you're going to tell it there's not enough volume. The skin's going to be loose and you're going to be able to tell that. Um, and so it's important about the interaction between your implant and the, the skin and nipple above that, or just skin uh, if it's a, it wasn't a nipple sparing mastectomy. So that is very, very important. And that's where every, all the efforts go into uh, for me to try to make something look natural. So I'm creating a pocket either above or below the muscle. And that pocket is going to hold the implant and that implant needs to stay there and it needs to be in the right position and in a good relationship with this skin overlying that. And that's what makes it look good. So with that in mind, knowing the difference of the breast tissue versus the implant, the breast tissue is attached to the nipple, which is attached to the skin. So where one goes, they all go. But the implant is not. The implant's in its own pocket. So if they start moving in different positions, um, and it's usually not the skin moving, it's the implant moving out of position, out of the pocket, then it no longer looks natural. So that implant needs to stay where it needs, where it's supposed to be, just like breast tissue would have stayed where it's supposed to be in relationship and wherever the skin and nipple go. So if I create this pocket and that implant starts to malposition or move, shift out of it where it's supposed to be, or, or if the pocket gets bigger than what it was, the implant doesn't change size. It should be a hand and glove fit. The pocket size should be exactly the size of the implant, not too small to misshape on the implant and not too big so the implant can move around. It needs to be a hand and glove fit, a foot and shoe fit. So if that pocket were to stretch 
then that pocket will remain bigger than the implant and it doesn't go back to what's its original size, right? So we don't want that to happen. Well, what will cause an implant pocket to stretch? Well, gravity is the biggest uh, culprit. So gravity is constantly pulling down when you're standing and it's pulling laterally to the side when you're laying. So the ultimate vector in physics is down and out. If you have one going down and one going out, it's the implant goes down and out. Well, what does that do? It takes exactly away from the cleavage that the patients wanna have. It takes the implants down and out and we wanna keep them up and in to look natural. So if the pocket space gets too big and the implant's not gonna change its size, it's just gonna move around. So when you lay down, it comes to the side and it's not holding up in its, in its center position anymore. And so, or it can go below the fold and then you get a double a bubble appearance because you have the, where the original fold is and then you have the, the, the bottom of the implant and they call that a double bubble uh, mount, uh, uh, issue. That doesn't uh, sound fun. <laughs> no. So the whole goal is I, for me, is I can get it there during surgery. I'll put all my effort into getting the pocket, the right pocket size and in the right location and ultimately the right implant size so that it makes it look natural. But time goes on and I'm in, you can't fixate the implant to the chest wall. The FDA won't allow it. So you can't suture it to its location. You have to rely on the pocket supporting it. Um, if that were to stretch from that, or maybe laying on your chest, if you lay on your chest, then it's going to push down on the implant and it's going to stretch out the diameter of that pocket. When you stop laying on it, the implant goes back to the original shape, but now you have a pocket that's bigger. It's like somebody with a bigger foot going in your shoe and stretching out your leather shoe. It will never fit correctly again. And, um, and so that's the problem that I'm trying to prevent. So back to the original question about exercising. If you're doing chest muscle exercises like pectoralis muscles, um, bench press or uh, things like that, push-ups, you are flexing the muscle and the muscle is the upper part of that pocket. So it pushes down and it, and it push, tries to push the implant out from underneath the muscle. The pocket is trying to support that and resist that. But the pocket is your own tissue and it's meant to stretch. All of our tissue is meant to stretch. That's how we can go from a baby to an adult or from an adult to an obese adult because our tissues are meant to stretch when pressure is applied. So if we have pressure that's constant, like gravity or lots of push-ups, it's going to make that pocket wider than it once was. And then the implant's gonna shift out of position and then it's not gonna look good. And the only way to fix it appropriately, you can try to tighten that pocket. You still have to do surgery, tighten the pocket, but that doesn't always hold, or you have to recreate a new pocket and hope it doesn't happen again. So my comments and my suggestions for our patients are to help prevent them from having future surgeries and try to keep it looking as good as it did right after surgery. I don't want to tell somebody they can't do what they want to do. So then there has to be some modifications. Um, so if you are going to be doing exercise is I like the patients to have an underwire sports bra. 
So we'll talk about the underwire issue. I know. Good segue. Good segue. I wanted to get to here. You were talking about gravity, and I was like, "Yes, that's what I want to talk to you about." Is underwire bras and the controversy in sports? So thank you. Yeah. Keep going. Again, to the analogy of what common sense to me would be is if we want an object to stay on a wall, say a, a a picture frame, you either have to nail it to the wall, or you have to put a shelf underneath the picture to keep it on the wall exactly where you want it. Now that shelf internally is what we're suturing in with the meshes. It's also your own tissue. But like I said, your tissue and those meshes are meant to stretch. So gravity will start to bring that down. So it's like having an, uh, a cardboard shelf. Since we can't nail the, the implant to the chest wall, we have to put a shelf there. Your own tissue is a shelf, but it's like a cardboard shelf. It gives a little bit of support, but really not much. A little bit of pressure more than the implant or the, the object that's sitting on it can cause it to collapse or shift or move. So if you have a more sturdy uh, shelf on the wall or something underneath the cardboard shelf to hold it up like a metal shelf, then that's going to really prevent that from shifting. So when I look at an underwire bra, the curve of that underwire is to fit around the curve of the implant. And if that's acting like a wall that's just outside of your uh, cardboard wall, which is your own tissue, and you're wearing a properly fitted bra that has this underwire, it's going to help minimize the risk of that implant shifting below the fold and preventing the double bubble deformity. And also laterally, when you lay, it also holds it into position and helps prevent it from falling off to the side. So that down and out vector of gravity that tries to always be there, if you have that underwire supporting your own uh, shelf, your own tissue, it's going to help minimize that. So that's the way that I see it. It makes common sense to me. It, it, um, and so I recommend to our patients that they wear an underwire bra day and night because gravity doesn't turn off when you turn the light switch off. So day and night, for at least the first year, mostly for the first two years, ideally. Why do I say a year or two years? Well, scar tissue will strengthen. When you, when you have scar tissue that develops, it's not even scar tissue for six weeks, and then it's immature scar tissue that continues to mature month after month after month. But usually after two years, the scar tissue is of what it, the strength that it's going to be in the maturity of that scar has pretty much completed. You can look at any scar you had on your arm or your skin, does the same thing. It's, it's changing over the course of a year or two years. And then after two years, you don't notice it anymore because it's not making much changes. Internally, the scar tissue is your friend in supporting it. It can be um, to keep that cardboard shelf maybe stronger like a wooden shelf, but it takes about two years for that to happen. And so if you were to put pressure on that area, it's like wet concrete, it hasn't hardened up yet. So if you put your finger down in, in wet concrete, you're gonna have a permanent change to that, that shape. And so if I recommend they wear, our patient, my patients wear an underwire bra day and night for the first two years. Most of the changes happen the first year. So if they can't do it beyond the first year, at least I can get a year out of that to minimize that risk after, um, but ideally at least two years, the more you support it, 
the better it's going to hold. And that goes the same for anyone that has cosmetic breast implants, because a lot of people that were never told to wear a bra, their implants when they lay down are off to the side because they have shifted. So it's not um, that it doesn't happen to everybody else, it, it, but it happens more to breast reconstruction because all of those support structures that would have been holding that implant with the breast tissue and stuff have been removed through the mastectomy if you've done a, a mastectomy. So uh, my recommendation is to try to keep it looking as good as possible for as long as possible and minimize the number of surgeries that somebody would need, like to have. Now, if you put the implant above the muscle, then those muscle movements don't, aren't affected and, and push-ups can be done without a negative effect to the implant position, but you still need to wear the underwire bra because your shelf isn't there. So that's my theory about it. And it, I think it's worked well. And I've had to repair a lot of other people's um, uh, patients that don't wear bras or weren't suggested to it or told them not to. And really for the life of me, I don't, I could see where somebody would maybe not mention it or don't believe that it helps to support it. But I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why somebody would say you should not do it because I'm not sure what the underwire is going to do. And the only thing I can think of is maybe they're concerned about lymphedema or something like that, but that those, those lymphatic channels go to the medial aspect, not down and not out. It's those have already been damaged and disconnected. The ones that are still remaining are in the, near the sternum and clavicle, and that's not being compressed. So again, I don't know if that's, if that's their theory there, then it's a misunderstanding of anatomy. Um, you're making my interview in very easy because that was a perfect segue right into the lymphedema again. Now I love, hopefully the listeners are literally sitting here going, Holy cow. I've picked up so many amazing nuggets. Like Dr. Vineyard is as awesome as Shannon said, and he's so knowledgeable. And I wish I had him for my surgery, my surgeon. Well, guess what? If you are anywhere in the, in the world, you can come and see Dr. Vineyard for any procedures. He does amazing cosmetic stuff as well, but I want to get to that in a second. First, I want to talk about lymphedema because that's always, I usually call that cancer's best kept secret, you know, in, in, in our breast cancer world, we, we usually talk about that because unfortunately the lack of communication between doctors and the patient is there with a lot of people. And a lot of times it's never talked about until they actually get a diagnosis. And as a cancer exercise specialist, it's important for me to be aware as to, you know, the lymph nodes being removed, their incisions, the medications they're on, so on and so forth. So I can be aware of that. And if they're ever uh, prescribed a sleeve, I will never work with them if they're not going to wear their sleeve, like if they refuse to. Now there's a lot of things that um, are talked about to avoid for precautions. Like I created a little mini course on lymphedema exercises for before and after doing an exercise routine. But I mean, even including like trying to avoid hot tubs and, you know, avoid insect bites and you know, things like that. Don't get your blood pressure taken on the same side. You had your lymph nodes removed or, um, and then I remember asking you about like, what about like tattoos? And then you started talking about there's whole new research on lymphedema. So I think it is so important that you can share that information that, you know, that's not talked about. So what's up with lymphedema? Like, should we be concerned about it? Should we not be concerned about it? Tell us please. So that goes back to, like I was saying before about the changes that have occurred over the, over the last three decades um, where uh, they were removing a lot of lymph nodes for the breast cancer, again, for the sole purpose of saving the patient's life. But as we learned that that's not necessary to do, and it causes more morbidity or more 
problems and complications like lymphedema that they have to live with for the rest of their life. Um, through research, we now know that that isn't, is not gonna increase your survival to remove every lymph node, and it only increases your risk for complications. So now we don't do that. We look at um, the sentinel lymph node, which is the first lymph node that the cancer should go to based on the location of where that's at. So they ask, how do you know where that's at? So the general surgeon will place a dye and usually a radioactive tracer into the area where that your particular cancer is at, and it will travel down like a chain, like a train to the net to the first train station, or maybe to the second or third. That radioactive dye will, and so they'll know where those lymph nodes are, and they can remove one, two, or three of those lymph nodes, usually less than five, and then they send those to the pathologist that's waiting to receive them while you're still asleep. Um, during your procedure. And then they will- It happens with it. most people. Yeah. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> so they will check it and they will see if it, the cancer is there. If the cancer is not there, they stop and they do not remove any more lymph nodes. If they see that there are, then they will remove probably five to 10 more. Why, why, and then you say, why five or 10? Why not all of them? Because there is research that shows that if you have lymph node involvement, if it's above a certain number or below a certain number, then that affects what chemotherapy and what radiation you may need. It's not a, uh, an exact number that it was in 14 or eight. It's that if it hits a certain number, and that's based on research that they're studying, if it hits a certain number, if it's above an, a certain number, then they would recommend a different course of action for your post-treatment in radiation and chemotherapy, but you can still leave the lymph nodes there. So that's why even when somebody does have a positive lymph node on a sentinel lymph node test, they do not remove all of the lymph nodes like they used to do. So the more lymph nodes that are removed, the less train stations that are there. And that's how these lymph nodes function. Um, they take the lymphatic fluid, which where you have swelling, the swelling goes to the lymph node. And then from the lymph node goes through each one of the train stations. And that's where your body is checking it and making sure that those cells are okay to pass through. And if they're not, then your cells will try to attack it. That's how we understand if we have an infection or cancer or things like that. So at those train stations, those lymph nodes, the body has cells that are checking. It. And then once they get through all of them, then they go and they dump that fluid back into the bloodstream so that it will be back in the artery and vein fluid. So that's the way our body works. Now, when they were removing all those lymph nodes, the swelling that would occur in normal everyday uh, swelling that occurs in the arm it would continue to progress and get more and more because it had nowhere to go. That's what lymphedema is. The fluid has nowhere to go because the train stations have all been wiped out. So by leaving the lymph nodes, you have much less risk. And if you only are removing like one, two or three like sentinel lymph nodes, the chance of getting lymphedema is extremely low. The more you remove, the chances of that being much higher. And since they were removing as much as they could get in the beginning, almost everybody was having lymphedema. 
okay? So that goes to like a blood pressure cuff. If you have a blood pressure cuff on that arm, it's going to back up fluid and you're going in the veins, the vein pushes it out, which turns into swelling. And if you have uh, an issue with your lymphatic flow, it's going to stay swollen. So they advise not doing that. But if you only have one, two or three lymph nodes that's been removed, putting a blood pressure cuff isn't going to cause a problem because the fluid has plenty other lymph nodes to go to. Because you might think, well, it's a train station. It's got to go from one to the other, to the other. But there's multiple train tracks that are happening with multiple stations. So it can find another train track that has a, a pathway to get through if they only damaged one of those train tracks in a few of the, the uh, train stations, the lymph nodes. They have many other tracks that it could have went through with other train stations, other lymph nodes that, that fluid and get out. So if somebody really only had a sentinel lymph node, they really could have a blood pressure cuff on that side. Now, if you're going to somewhere and have surgery or anywhere that they're gonna do a blood pressure cuff, you got another arm. So it's easier just to say, if you ever had lymph nodes, don't put it on that side. But the real uh, answer is that it is customized per patient, but it's easier to say, just use the other arm but then you're not really thinking through the process. You're not really thinking about this person being different than another, but to educate everybody that would be putting on a blood pressure cuff for them to understand that is, is a, you know, it's, it's hard to do that. It's impossible. A little more complicated. Yeah. yeah. So um, we're not seeing lymphedema like we used to it, but they still may have some lymphatic swelling because some of those tracks have been damaged. So lymphatic massage helps to, find that fluid to go to some of those other tracks where the, the lymph nodes are okay. Um, so uh, lymphatic massage is great, but the breast, it's okay too. You just have to be careful with not malpositioning the implant or shifting the, putting so much pressure that you're stretching the pocket out where the breast is, but usually it's light massage is what lymphatic massage is. So it helps to um, manipulate the fluid to go towards the other areas that have tracks that are open that, that can go to the lymph nodes that are still open. Does that help? It absolutely does. So hopefully the listeners will listen to that and be like, oh God, I don't have to freak out so bad. Um, between over the muscle, under the muscle, underwire bras, all the different reconstruction surgeries, all the different surgeries that have happened over the last 14 years, there have been a ton of nuggets that you have dropped. And I greatly, greatly appreciate it. But what we haven't talked about, there's two more things I want to talk about, but we haven't talked about you being the country singing surgeon. I've talked about in previous podcasts and I've referred people to your Instagram. And yes, this is Dr. Vineyard, the country singing surgeon who sings country music with Mary Louise, his nurse practitioner in the OR to all of his mermaids. He calls us all mermaids. So I would love to hear, how did that start? Well, I've always loved country music and I've loved singing. Um, for me, it's there's a lot of distractions inside the operating room um, for me to stay focused with the, the beeps from the anesthesia machine, people moving in and out of the rooms. There's, you know, and my mind wants to know what everything is that's going on. And uh, without music in the operating room, there is just too many distractions for me to stay focused on what I need to do. So having music in the operating room helps me to stay focused. I'm not focused on the music. It just 
it get, puts my mind into a, a place where I can 100% focus on what I'm doing. But it also puts everybody else's mind it, into the music and what's going on. So there's less conversations or anything that could be distracting. Um, now, I didn't have the courage to sing in front of patients. So I would sing a little bit underneath my breath um, while I was operating. Um, and then uh, I started singing a little bit louder and then people enjoyed that. And then the patients heard from the pre-op and post-op um, nurses that I would sing and that they should ask me for a song. So then I started singing um, to our patients before they went to sleep. And so now uh, it has gone to where everybody picks out which song they want me to sing. And then I sing them while they're sing to them while they're going to sleep. And then I sing during the procedure, but it, I'm not really focused on the singing. It's just how I, I stay focused on what I'm doing. Um, and then that branched out to uh, starting a band and. Uh, yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> and then getting on stage and, uh, and being the lead singer of a country music band. Um, and Mary Louise, who would operate on all the cases with me, she also sings very well. And um, she joined the band. And so we both would sing in, in the band or to our patients. And so now we have patients that come from all over the country that may want to have their surgery done and they're coming with requests for songs. And it's so, so it's awesome. Been, yeah. If you have not had a chance, go over to Instagram and go find Dr. Vineyard at Country Singing Surgeon. And then they can also find you um, for the Vineyard Institute of Plastic Surgery um, under your name, correct? Yep, Dr. Dr. Vineyard. Yep. yep. So go check him out on Instagram. And also you can check out a lot of his procedures on his website, which is plastic surgery vips.com. That's right. And don't call them VIPs. Nope. Nope. We're VIPs. VIPs. The whole point of the practice is to really treat every patient like a VIP. And you do. um, And so every one of our staff members know that and they're excellent at it. So um, it's trying to create a VIP family type uh, environment. So plastic surgery, VIPs. Absolutely. And, and you do, you walk out of there feeling like family. It's amazing. Like here we are, we're still friends. And I just, you know, I think it's amazing. I'd love to be able to share you with everybody. I wish everybody got to experience going through procedure with you. Unfortunately, I don't want them to have breast cancer, but you know, not only that you are known for mommy makeovers. Like people come from what, like 25 other States you've had people come in from to do mommy makeovers. That's pretty spectacular. And will you sing to them as well? Of course. Yeah. That's awesome. Are there any songs you won't sing? Um, whatever it sound, whatever song it is, is going to sound like country if I'm singing it. So <laughs> I love it. They can you, pick a song. Do you want to sing? Uh, do you want to sing a little song on this podcast or should we make them wait? I will make it's a country singing surgeon. That's right. You can go check it out on country singing surgeon. I've recorded some of the videos at your concerts and I've posted them on to my Instagram as well. Which and actually also- which actually started from a patient of mine that said during the uh, quarantine said, you know, we can't hear you sing. We can't see you. So uh, why don't you record us some videos? And so um, that's how all that started. And then um, through the comments, people would request more songs. And so that's how the country singing certain Instagram got started. Yeah. That was pretty awesome. Let's talk about those mommy makeovers and all the other amazing services that you provide because you don't just do breast reconstruction. You have like a full smorgasbord of stuff between cool sculpting, IPL, Votiva, 
um, mommy makeovers, you name it. Like you are a one-stop shop. So talk about a mommy makeover. What does that include? So a mommy makeover uh, is a term that's used for anything that has to do with doing breast procedure and tummy procedure. The most common is going to be a breast lift uh, with or without an implant and a, and a tummy tuck, abdominoplasty. And that's because the tissue gets stretched out from the pregnancy and the um, breastfeeding. So that's why you typically need to be lifting the breast or removing skin from the abdomen. Um, so, but it could also include just breast augmentation or liposuction. It's whatever combination to try to make the body go back to more of a, a pre-mommy uh, appearance. So my passion has always been for cosmetic uh, surgical procedures, trying to make things look better than uh, they were, which technically is the most challenging thing to do. Of all the surgeries that I've done from, uh, you know, lung resections and heart bypasses and transplants, the most challenging is cosmetic plastic surgery. And that's because you're seeing the results and you're expecting something to be uh, newer, you know, better than it was. And so, and instead of just trying to uh, make something better than it, uh, it is after an injury. For me, breast reconstruction is the most challenging cosmetic surgery. I, I, in my mind, I think of it as cosmetic surgery, not, um, and I don't define that by who's paying insurance or private pay. It's more of, we're trying to make something look beautiful. And it has the most limitations and the most challenges, which is why I love doing it but it should be always approached as cosmetic surgery. Um, but as for the other uh, cosmetic surgeries, uh, having that training uh, specifically for cosmetic plastic surgery from facelifts, eyelid surgery, neck lift, um, uh, rhinoplasties or nose surgeries, breast lift, breast implants, tummy tucks, lipos liposuction, skin tightening procedures, um, body lifts for those who have lost a lot of weight, uh, massive weight loss. Um, this is what we're trained and love to do. And we do, uh, many of these procedures. Um, and like you mentioned, we have people coming, uh, from different States. They'll come and they'll do consults. Some of them, we can do virtual consults. Some of them fly down, um, for their consultation and then, um, uh, stay for the procedure and recovery. Um, but as you mentioned, one of the, the hottest topics in plastic surgery is the non-surgical uh, options like what what can we do with minimizing the surgery and getting people to get back to work as soon as possible and so anywhere from injections of botox uh, uh, fillers for facial rejuvenation we've got uh, radio frequency microneedling that has really took off in plastic surgery and that helps for skin tightening and uh, anti-aging for anywhere on the body um, face stretch marks and it can also help with acne reducing uh, active acne. Um, we have uh, CO2 lasers that allow us to smooth the skin and give a better complexion. We have estheticians that will perform facials and we have a diamond glow facial that's wonderful. Uh, nice experience to, uh, for cleaning uh, and cleansing the skin. Uh, the top of line uh, medical skincare products, we also sell those as well and do full skin consultations with our esthetician. Uh, we have vaginal rejuvenation for the mommy makeovers. Um, 
this is completely non-surgical and um, after babies there's a stretch of the pelvic floor which has increased for stress urinary incontinence and for those uh, patients that have mild to moderate stress urinary incontinence with laughing or jumping or coughing sneezing um, those things can be uh, improved substantially with a non-surgical non-painful uh, procedure called votiva that our uh, female nurse practitioner uh, performs in the office um, we have skin tightening procedures with liposuction um, for body contouring that we can do in the office. And, and if it's done in the office, they get a full country concert. <laughs> That's awesome. I am a testament to the Votiva. It was amazing. As a fitness professional, having to jump and, and all of that, it was amazing. And I know I've sent, I've sent a lot of, um, of my clients to you for that because they experienced it as well. And it's unfortunate. It happens as women, but it's an amazing procedure. So that's awesome. Yep. And uh, how long does the mommy makeover usually take? It's done right in the office, right? Or is that done in the OR? You know, the, the full mommy makeover would be something like a breast lift, um, tummy tuck. That's done in a surgery center. Okay. It takes us about, uh, takes me about four hours of my time to do. Um, and, but I focus on all the details. Everything in cosmetic surgery has to be about the details. Um, uh, when you're looking at tummy tucks, the, the most challenging portion of the entire procedure is the belly button. And it's something that people don't really think about, but anybody can look at before and afters and that's where you notice a substantial difference. So um, we spend a lot of time on our incisions. So we do multiple layers of uh, un, uh, dissolvable suture to help minimize that suture or the incision from spreading. We spend about 20, 30 minutes before the procedure, just marking it out so that it's in the perfect location for their body, for their, for their bathing suit or underwear. Um, and so it's those details that make a, a big difference. Um, rushing through these procedures and um, just he's going to have the patient live with the result that could have been better for the rest of your life. If you just spend another 20 minutes or 30 minutes putting the effort into making it look as good as possible. So um, it's those results that people are seeing now because of social media and, um, there are Facebook groups, social, uh, social groups out there where people will share their experiences. And that's why in two years, we've had people from 25 different states. Hopefully we'll have from all 50 states sometime soon. But yes, well, um, we'll just keep talking about it and sharing all your awesomeness. And hopefully we'll make that happen soon. Great. <laughs> I hopefully, hopefully you'll get some more people just from this podcast. Even, I mean, I know I have a friend that's in Connecticut right now and she is saving her pennies. She's moving down here in another year and a half after her daughter graduates um, middle school. And she already knows that she wants, she's lost a ton of weight. So she already knows she wants to have the mommy makeover. So I'm really excited about that. So that one will be coming from Connecticut. If you've had that state yet, I don't know. Um, but anyway, so listeners, you can hear how amazing Dr. Vineyard is he does everything from breast reconstruction to Botox. Maybe I should say Botox to breast reconstruction. That's why we had the hashtag at one point, Botox and boobies by Dr. Vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be treated like a mermaid and a VIP, I highly suggest you go see Dr. Vineyard for any of your procedures that you need breast, tummy. And listen, it's not just, it's not just women. You take care of men as well, right? Oh, for sure. Yes. Because you know, men need some love too. They get some saggy skin, they get, you know, they lose weight as well. They have transformation. So yes, you take care of the men as well. You can even have like a husband and wife makeover. Yeah. Right? And we also have non-surgical fat reduction. So people can come in and leave. There's no downtime whatsoever. And we bought the latest and that's cool sculpting, but we bought the latest cool sculpting elite that just came out. We were one of the first to 
purchased cool sculpting when it came out about 10 years ago and this is the first time in 10 years that they've changed and upgraded the actual procedure um, and we were the first on the treasure coast to obtain that as well so all right we i do a lot of research to make sure that we have the best equipment um, for our patients um, results leading the pack that's what i like all right, we've covered a lot here between breast reconstruction, the amount of surgeries, lymphedema, the controversy of underwire bra, over and under the muscle, um, lymphedema, I think I said, and your awesome men's spa. Like, what, what are we missing? What are we missing? What do the listeners need to hear? What's one last thing that you feel like the listeners need to hear and take away from this? I think the most important thing is uh, proper communication and relationship building. So. Uh, there are going to be a lot of plastic surgeons out there, a lot of different offices. Um, people may not be able to, to fly or come to, to see us. There's no way that we could do everybody's procedures. So it's, it's most important that they develop a relationship. They do consultations, have more than uh, one opinion, whatever it's for, if it's for cosmetic or if it's for breast reconstruction and make sure you have a good relationship that you can relate with this person especially for breast reconstruction, but in any surgery procedure, you have to assume that complications can happen. And if they do happen, would this person be the one that you want to help you get through it? Um, and if the answer is no, then you really shouldn't be doing that. If you're, if you're going to uh, sign up for a procedure because it's the least expensive procedure and you want to get it done, but then you meet the, the person and you know, you trust them to do the procedure, but you wouldn't trust them if there's a complication. That's not the right, not the right place for somebody. They really need to be able to see what fits best for them because they, you want to have a good relationship with them. And I think that's the best advice I can give. I greatly appreciate that you said that because I am a huge advocate for women, for patients to be their own advocate, like to be the conductor of their own journey, because at the end of the day, it's your body, it's your health and everyone is specific. And I, I can't preach it enough to say, just because the doctor said that doesn't mean that you have to say that's okay. And so I love that you are that compassionate and that caring to be able to have that open communication dialogue, because it's so important for any doctor, even a dentist, like you should be able to have that open communication right. and feel good about it because it's your life. And you know, it's, it's not about the mighty dollar. It's about caring for the person. And you, you genuinely do that. You and Mary Louise and every single person in your, in your office genuinely care about everyone that comes into your office. So I appreciate that. I know other people that have come to you for services appreciate that as well. And I've met new friends because of coming to you, not only you and your wife, but also breast cancer survivors that um, have come into my life because of you. And I appreciate that. And we've built new friendships. That's we call right. ourselves breasties. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, I thank you so much for sharing all of your, your information, your, your compassion, your everything, like everything you have to say is amazing. And you genuinely, genuinely mean everything that you say, and you're so knowledgeable. And I hope that the listeners really pick up a lot from here um, and they can go back and feel confident in talking to their doctors or their medical team and have a voice for themselves and just speak up for themselves. So thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on today. I appreciate it. All right. If you guys want to hear him sing, you need to go over to Instagram to country singing surgeon, or you can check him out. Dr. Vineyard, Dr. Vineyard at Instagram as well. Um, we will put all the links into the show notes and you'll be able to see that. And if you are thinking about a mommy makeover, I know where to go. You can check out Dr. Vineyard at Vineyard Institute of Plastic Surgery.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope this week's episode has somehow changed your life with a smile. As a reminder, I have a few spots open for my founding members of only $27 a month. If you're looking for guidance through your breast cancer journey or know someone who could use some help, head on over to shannonburrows.com, join our private Facebook group, download any of my free resources, or simply just to connect. I love meeting new friends. Until next week, live well, laugh often, and love much.